Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you. You're still wearing your red. That's nice. You look very pretty. Yeah. How many of you had an opportunity to be at our uh, Christmas Eve worship service this week? Did you enjoy that experience? Wow. Thank you, Monica, Robin, Todd, team. We really appreciate it. That was wonderful. Today we're continuing the last of our Advent series, uh, a sermon series entitled From Glory to Glory. My name is Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here. And what I'm hoping to do through this series is this, is basically I want to tell you that God cares about you and has a plan for your life. It's kind of a radical thing to believe, and I imagine it's a struggle for each of us, but it's true. God loves you. He actually loves you. You specifically, you individually, you with all of your warts, you. God loves you. And the way I'm doing that is intentional. I'm trying to be biblical because that's what I find to be true. And it is through this process of seeing not ourselves at the center of the universe, but instead of seeing God as the center of the universe, as the driving force and feature and reckoning factor behind everything we do. And so, as I look at this process, what I see in the grand redemptive meta-narrative, the overarching big picture, the story of humanity, is this movement from creation to the fall to the redemption to restoration. These are the four sermons we've had, and we've entitled it From Glory to Glory. Here's a slide if you're taking notes. And basically what it means is this, is we started out in a perfect state, and then we fell from that. And now each and every day of our lives, we experience the results of the fall, and we struggle with it. We walk through this process where we, you know, we take our vitamins, and we eat our vegetables, and we go to the doctor, and we get on the treadmill, and we do everything we can, and yet the weeds still win. In the end, we die, and sickness and death and thorns overtake us. And if that were all there were, we would be left a miserable heap of ashes. But instead, what we see is that God in His grace, despite our fallen state, comes after us. That He redeems us and promises to lead us not back to where we were, but instead someplace even better. From glory to glory, from Eden to eternity, from ashes to perfection. This is the incredible movement of our great God. And this is how I hope it inspires you or gives you the courage to live out the coming years that in your individual lives you will experience more of redemption than of the fall. More of God's grace than our sin. And as you look at Him as the center and focus of your reality then your life moves forward with meaning and purpose. And as a result, you begin to fully understand how God cares about you and has meaning for your life. So today, we come to the final one. Restoration, where God leads us to glory. This is found in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. 
And I know immediately as I say that word, some of us go, woohoo, revelation. <laughs> the apocalypse, you know, like dragons and visions and blah, 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 blah. What in the world is going on there? I also know that there are a number of interpretations, and this is a good place for Christians to fight if we decide to have an internal house debate or dialogue. I want you to know that's not my intention today, and there are a number of good interpreters. Um, if you want to pursue the various views further, you can look up Zondervan's four views of Revelation, and it'll give you all the different, well, not all, but the four major recognized views, and you can pursue those and pick your own. But you'll quickly see where I'm coming from today, which is very much in line with uh, the doctrinal statement of the EFCA and other scholars of that ilk. So then, let's look, or well, let me preface first uh, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and then we'll walk through um, both some of the sim- literalism, the symbolism, and the applications to your lives. I believe that in uh, this portion of Scripture, what you have is the final stage in God's redemptive plan for humanity as He originally intended it. So what you see in chapter 20, we're not looking at chapter 20, but what you see in chapter 20 is a thousand-year period that we call the millennium, and then the final judgment, and then the events of chapter 21 and 22. So you've had the thousand-year reign of Christ, and I personally believe that that's a literal reign here on this planet. Then you have the final judgment. And then what you see is basically sin has so thoroughly corrupted our world that God is going to destroy it and make a new one. Revelation 21 then describes that recreation, the new creation of the heavens and the earth. And what it basically ends at is this, is that God's holiness becomes our ultimate reality. God's holiness becomes the ultimate reality. So then, with those lenses, let us look at chapter 21 and 22. It says this. This is an abbreviated version. I've cut out some of the descriptions, so if you can follow in your Bible, or you can also follow on the screen. And there will be some things highlighted in green text in the slides that I'll be pulling out in today's talk. Chapter 21. It says this, this is John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said to me, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And now down to the city, the new Jerusalem, verse 22. He says, and I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, 
For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22 goes on to describe more of that glory. It says in verse 1, Then the angel showed me a river, the water, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding each fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, for no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then in verse 6, culminating this prophecy, Jesus is Uh, describing his coming and John says he said to me these words are trustworthy and true and the Lord God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place and behold I am coming soon blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches I am the root and the descendant of David the bright and morning star the spirit and the bride that's us joining in now say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price he who testifies to these things says surely i am coming soon amen come lord jesus amen is that what you're looking forward to there's my hope The way I want to walk you through it today is this, is basically, um, I'm not, as you know, a brilliant engineer, but I did make it through subtraction and addition. So, here's my high-end level math. This is what we will do. We will describe the new creation in terms of subtraction and addition. We will look at what things have been taken away from our former mode of existence And then what new things have been given to us. So we begin basically by saying what's missing. And then we say what more do we have. Now there are a lot of things that are missing. And I'm not going to focus on each and every individual one. I'm just going to use two big broad categories. And they are symbols that are in this text. And you will see what they represent. In the same way I'll give you two specifics uh, for the addition. Which will expand that category for you as well so what is missing well chapter 21 the first verse says this it says then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more the sea was no more what a strange thing If we were to rebuild this planet, would you not include the sea? I mean, the sea is beautiful, right? If you've ever been to the IMAX, you've perhaps watched one of these ocean 
sort of films where you dive in and all the bubbles come up and you go down to the bottom and you see all the fish and stuff like that. Or maybe even better, you've gone snorkeling in a tropical place and you've sat below the crystal clear water and you've snapped your fingers and you've watched this myriad of beautiful fish come in as they begin to feed on the coral around you and you say, wow, look at this incredible diversity. This is so beautiful, it's so bright, it's so colorful, it's so clear. It is amazing. It is representative of a divine and majestic and beautiful creator. Look at this. And you swim and you feel as though you yourself are immersed in the glory of God's creation. And you ask yourself the question, well, why in the world would God ever do away with something so beautiful And so incredible as that. And the answer is this. In ancient times, the way they thought of the sea is not the same as we thought, we think of it. So, for example, if you read the book of Job, the waters are dark and it is where Leviathan lurks. It is a place of judgment and destruction and unknown, frightening dimension that people are afraid of. It represents separation and indeed in the flood and in other areas the judgment of God where the waters come sweeping upon the earth. It is something that separates people and uh, provides strange phenomena like storms that to the ancient mind seem completely unpredictable. And so when you read this text, Revelation chapter 21, what you'll see is that the sea is lumped in with other categories that are done away with as well. For example, death, mourning, weeping, pain, night, and the curse. All of these are done away with, and the sea is simply representative of all of those things. So in my mind, as I interpret this passage, I myself am completely comfortable by saying, well, more than likely then, the new heavens and the new earth will be a place in which there is no sea. No physical, literal sea. Now, there's a couple ways I get to that, and I'll explain that here in a minute. But uh, one of which is this, is the interpretive method that I'm using says basically, if something is self-proclaimed to be a symbol, then automatically you know it is a symbol. So, for example, if there's a chart of these self-proclaimed symbols, you can go to soniclight.com. And you can get free PDF files from Dr. Tom Constable on on a chart that says where here's a symbol, here's its interpretation. So, for example, seven lampstands in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, are seven churches in chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, the, The ten horns in chapter 17, verse 12, are ten kings. And there's a number of places where this text will specifically spell out what the symbols are. It'll say, this is that. In this case, you, in that case, you know it's a symbol. In other ways, for example, in literature, you'll have what's called metaphor or simile. It'll say, this is like this or as that. Automatically, you know then this is a picture. But in places where you don't have textual interpretations or you don't have uh, indicators in the text, then it becomes a bit more tricky and you have to ask yourself, okay, is this a symbol or is this literal? I, at this point, have no reason to believe that it's anything other than literal, so that's where I'm landing. 
Now, that being the case, I feel good about that because if you want to uh, make the C a symbol, then to be consistent in all those other categories, you need to do the same thing. So, for example, if you say, well, there could still be C, then you could also say there could still be death, or there could still be mourning, or there still could be crying. And I don't think we want to go that far. So, cons- to be consistent and to stay within the literary genre of the text, I'm interpreting this as literal. So, let me give you a couple implications then of no physical C. What does that do for us? Well, one of the cool things I think it does for us is that it shows us that, in fact, our current temporal way of thinking is not consistent with eternity. What do I mean by that? Water is not the source of life. When we look at our current planet, we see three-fourths of the globe covered by water, and we realize that this gives air to the ox- or oxygen to the air, and we see all the things that this affects in our climate, and et cetera, et cetera. We think, yeah, this is the one reason we can exist on our planet is because of water. But in fact, what you see in Scripture is that God sees water as simply a created substance, something that he walks upon and turns into wine willy-nilly. It is no big deal to him. So, for example, listen now, listen to the consistency here. When Jesus talks to the woman at the, well, she's of the earthly mindset that water is the source of life. And so he engages her along those lines, and their conversation goes something like this. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. There's a nice conversation starter. Her disciples had gone away to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, well, why are you asking me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? Because you know you Jews don't really talk to us, right? Jesus answered her, listen, here's, here's the flip. Here's the flip. He says, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What? Living water versus what kind of water is this? And then she asked him, um, Sir, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus says, Everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Jesus is saying to the woman, I am life. I am the source. Not water. Me. I am the source of life. Now, take Jesus' words and go directly to Revelation. And what you see in chapter 22, verse 1, is this. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing down where? Where is the source? From the throne of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Who is life? What is the source of life? Not water. Jesus is the source of life. And he knows that. And he brings people to the well. 
He gives the wells to the patriarchs, knowing that at some point he himself will sit by them and say, this is not the source, I am. I am the source, and so in the new city, you're not going to need this, because you have me. This is gone. Behold, all things are new. You don't need to see when you have the source. Water, to us, seems absolutely necessary. But Christ flips everything on its head and says, no, that's just stuff. I'm it. I am the real thing. So you lose, in the new creation, you lose the sea. Because it is symbolic to the um, ancient mindset of sin, separation, and death. Boom, those things are gone away with. And because it demonstrates to us that Jesus is the source of life. So number one, the first thing that is subtracted or taken away is the sea. The sea is gone because there is no more judgment. There is no more sin. There is no more Leviathan. It is done away. Now all you have is life. Secondly, what else is missing? There's no temple. There's no temple. Now again, just as the Samaritan woman was taken aback by this statement about living water and stuff, to the Jewish people, if you say to them, there's no temple, they're going to be like, bam, blasphemy. What are you talking about? The temple is where God dwells. This is the center of his presence with his people. This is the thing that has guided us for thousands of years. Our entire society revolves around this process. It is our mainstay. As the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, the temple was for the Jews the center of every aspect of their being. If there is no temple, there is no Judaism. What do you mean, no temple? Well, again, this is completely consistent with Jesus' teaching. In the exact same passage, in the exact same conversation with this Samaritan woman at the well, the conversation uh, continues when Jesus confronts her sin and he says to her, hey, go call your husband and tell him to come here. The woman's like, uh-oh, <laughs> I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. What you're saying is true. You have no single husband. That's because you have five. And the one you have now is not your real husband. The woman said to him, you know, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Okay, you got that right about me. Here's a trick question for you. Are you ready? You're not ready for this one, buddy. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's setting him up for controversy between the Samaritans and Jews. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Try to answer that now, will you? And Jesus says to her this, not answering which one is better, but this is what he says. He points her towards Revelation 21 and 22. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Not confined to a local temple in a specific spot. No longer will there be any temple. Why? Because Revelation chapter 21 verse 22 says this. I saw no temple in the city for its temple is 
the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The temple, the shadow, the foretaste is, rep, is, is replaced by that thing which is real. The presence of God symbolically containing him is now gone and you have the real thing. Why would you want a temple when you have the thing itself? This is the beauty of the mathematics of eternity. What you have is the subtraction of the temple adding up to the addition of the lamb. In other words, I know this is something to think about. This is the book of Revelation. It's tricky. Follow here. The movement from glory to glory looks like this. You start with creation, and then there is a fall. And because of the fall, the people are asking, well, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? We have this mosaic, Levitical, sacrificial system where we repeat this process over and over again. We take our best unblemished lamb and we offer it up on the Day of Atonement once a year, but it's never enough. And we have to keep coming back over and over and over again. And we don't ever see it fulfilled. Where is the lamb? And then... As the two systems become one, John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, Behold, there he is. There's the Lamb. There's the Lamb of God. Look, there's the pure and spotless, unblemished Lamb that you've always been hoping for that will sacrifice himself once and for all for the permanent, complete, and eternal removal of sins. Behold, the Lamb. Redemption. Now we come to restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And now restoration is consumed in the presence of the Lamb. Now, Revelation chapter 1, you don't even have to look at it, but let me describe it. When John first gets this vision, he's, he's on the island of Patmos. And he's, Christ comes to him. And he describes his vision of Christ, you know, like this nuclear, brilliant, all-consuming, white, shining light. And as you follow then the book of Revelation and its development, what you would expect is Christ to get brighter and brighter and this thing to be more overwhelming and more overwhelming. But in fact, what you see in 27 of 32 occurrences is that he is not described as bright, shining light, but instead Christ is described as the Lamb. Even... In the eternal state, Christ's glory centers upon the fact that he is the Lamb. What a strange and jolting image to see throughout the book of Revelation, that the Lamb is the primary name for the Son of God. Yes, he is the one who creates. Yes, he is the one who rules. Yes, he is the one who judges. But by far, the most dominant image... In other words, the most important thing that he is, is the Lamb of God. Christ's greatest work, even though he's involved in all the other work, the creation, the judgment, the restoration, but his greatest work is that of the atonement, of being the sacrificial Lamb of God. Here you find the Son's glory expressed most clearly. In heaven, his glory centers upon the fact that he is the Lamb of God. It is the Lamb who is seated upon the throne. 
So then when you look through this math, what you see is you see the subtraction of the sea, the subtraction of the temple, and the addition of the lamb. And as a result, what happens then is that we are able to see his face. Nowhere in history has this ever been possible. Indeed, Exodus Exodus tells us that you cannot see God's face and live. But now things are changing to the extent that Revelation says they will see his face and their name will be on their foreheads. In other words, what's happening is that everything in your life is being seen from the perspective of looking at God. Right now, that is not your current experience. We are clouded by our own sin and our own um, predispositions and our own prejudices and judgments and everything else. But in heaven, the, the ability to see clearly is given to us. As a result, the author says there, his name will be on our foreheads. It will be the first and primary thought behind everything we do. Now, hear the application here. That is what we're moving towards. But there's no reason right now we can't try. Just because we're not there yet, we're not at a point where everything we think about is Christ in His glory, doesn't mean it shouldn't be. This is the amazing already not yet of Scripture. The fact that we will have eternal life, but we do have eternal life right now. You have the gift of eternal life. You can begin to realize this, the experience of Christ's rule in your heart as you look forward to his rule and reign on this earth. You can move in that direction as you are gradually conformed to his image, to the image of his son. And as a result, as you move forward, he will be your focus then in all of your relationships, in all of your circumstances, in all of your events, in all of your attempts. Everything in your doing in life should have his name written on it. This is the goal, is that God is the center of the universe, not us. It is the Lamb and his glory that we proclaim and we look forward to. And is that which will be realized and is being realized in our lives right now. Not perfectly, but gradually. And we look forward to his return in the perfection of of all things, where God's holiness becomes our reality. This is what the New Testament authors in Colossians then say when they say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. As I said earlier today, my intent is to encourage you. I know that that is a a heady, in a sense, sermon. It is futuristic and it's forward-looking. And you may be sitting there asking the question, well, how does this affect me now? The answer is this. God loves you. He cares for you. And he has a perfect plan for your life. And he is working all of these things out in his way and in his time. And so as you take the focus off of yourself and you put it on him, you begin to see things in perspective. And then the author of Hebrews says, you look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and trust that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He is 
the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He's all that. He was from the beginning. He is all the way to the end, and everything is in him. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace by his blood on the cross, the Lamb of God. Now, as you watch this thing come full circle, listen to how this works then, from glory to glory. Okay, let me line these things up for you. Genesis, Revelation. I'm going to read these phrases. The first is from Genesis. The second, from Revelation. Genesis. Heavens and earth created. Revelation, a new heavens and a new earth. Genesis, the sun is created. Revelation, no need for a new sun. The sun is there. The night is established in Genesis. In heaven, in Revelation, there will be no night. The seas are created. There is no more sea. The curse was announced. There is no more curse. Death enters history. Now there is no more death. Man is driven away from the tree. Now they are restored to paradise. Sorrow and pain begin, and now there is no more crying, mourning, or pain. God has brought this whole thing full circle. From glory to glory. From Eden in paradise to an even better place. Where now we realize... God's holiness as the ultimate reality. This is a forceful reminder that all of life is to be lived in the presence of God. Where God and the Lamb become the light in your life, then you begin to radiate with that glow to others. And as you do so, then church, my hope for you is this, is that in in 2016... You move forward with the glory of God written on your forehead as that being the vision of your all-consuming passion, desiring and wanting more of Him. And you go forward with that in your sights and you see that influence all of your relationships, your career, your entire life, every aspect, and you begin to experience then more of redemption than the fall. Why? Because we're not the center of the universe. Christ is. And as you see him moving this thing through, you align yourself with that. And as a result, you are gradually conformed to the image of God. And you can proclaim his name forevermore to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Father, we're thankful for who you are and for your Son for your work in our life and the amazing plan that you have. Lord, we don't know what our immediate future holds and we only have glimpses of the potential reality given to us in the book of Revelation. But we know that you're good and you're working all things according to your good for your glory. And we know also, Father, that your good and glory is our good. And we're thankful for that. So we pray, God, as you do your work, that you would do your work in us, in our church, in our community, and throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.